This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. Well, today on the podcast, we have Eleanor Medhurst, who is responsible for Dressing Dykes at Dressing Dykes on Instagram. And she is a lesbian fashion historian. And you should honestly really check out her Instagram. I'm sorry I said Insta, like I'm from, like I'm a child. Um, it's awesome. It's awesome. And I love to see the photos on there. And it's, she's really cool. And she's doing really cool work. So check that out. Also, speaking of checking things out, you want to come see me on tour? Well, that's great because, oh no, LA is this week. So that's not, that's not anything. You already missed LA because it was this week. And, but great news. You could see me in New York, August 11th through 13th. And you could see me in Nashville, August 14th, Austin on the 20th, Denver, the 21st, Burlington, Vermont, September 8th through 10th. And then Boston on September 11th. I, I really need to see you there. Oh, also I, every time I mention this, we get new people. So please go to patreon.com slash heyqueeros and you can support the show. And tons of people do it and always new people, every week new people. So I, it matters so much to keeping this show alive and running and helps me to be able to make it. So thank you and I love you. Goodbye. Well, no, listen to the rest of the show. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still Hi, nice to meet you. Yeah, welcome to the the thing. <laughs> I always have guests introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Yes. Um, so hi, I am Eleanor Metest and I'm a historian of lesbian fashion. Um, so awesome. Yeah, that's basically what I do. It's a nice way to sum it up. What's going on with the weather? It's just really, really hot and I don't know if it's having an effect on... Oh yeah, like fries like, the... Connection or... I don't know. Um, but like in the UK, we don't have any air con or anything like that. So it's just like hot. <laughs> Wait, you don't? Why do I not? No, no, I, not like in like houses or flats or anything like that. So what do you do? A fan? We're just hot. You just hot? Yeah. Because <laughs> we don't like, it's not hot weather that often, but right now it really is. Right. So. Okay. That sounds terrible. But yeah, it's okay. It's all right. This is, I like saw you on the internet and I was like, oh, I, I would love to talk to this person. What, how, what do you, how do you do that? Tell me about yeah. that job. Yeah. So, um, I've basically, I have a degree in fashion history, um, and a master's in history of design and material culture. Wow. And while I was doing those studies initially, I sort of realized that there wasn't much out there on lesbian fashion history or queer fashion history in general, but especially lesbian fashion history and why like clothing is really important within lesbian history um, and lesbian self-expression historically. Um, so yeah, I really, I realized that 
I wanted to look into this more. And as I started searching and researching lesbian fashion history in all sort of ways and locations and contexts, I realized that that was something I wanted to continue even more. Um, so I started my blog, Dressing Dykes, and um, I just put out articles about things that I'd found and researched. And eventually that formed into other things. Like I've got a TikTok account and an Instagram. And now I do like lecturing and talks and I write articles. Um, so yeah, it just started with a, a passion for this project and people have really resonated with it, I think. So when did that, when did the schooling part happen? How long ago was that? Mm, um, and that was, I finished my master's in 2020. Pretty recently. So, yeah. 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 Not, and where does one ago. get, where do you get like a degree in, is it like a fashion school? Where do you get a degree in fashion history? An art school? Yeah. Well, fashion history is like, it's not a topic that is super popular in terms of like universities or academic settings. So it's just at a regular university. It was at the University of Brighton. Wow, um, really? But That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, I did, yeah you, so you just said like a, okay, all right. Um, but Brighton yeah. is queer, yes? Brighton's pretty queer? Yeah, Brighton's, Brighton's a really queer place. I'm actually from there. I grew up there. Oh, that's interesting. Which is... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a really it, amazing um, city and it does have a massive queer population. I've never been there for some reason. You know, that will change, I'm sure, hopefully in my life. But can you tell me the queerness that's, I just have heard that it's a queer place. What is it, what's it like in terms of the environment there? It's just, it's really like artistic. There's a lot of students and um, like young queer people like flock there, which really increases the the queer atmosphere, I think. But there's, it's a very open city. There's been like a big pride parade and march and festival there for years and years now, every year. Um, the museum, the local museum puts on queer exhibitions, a couple of which I've helped put together. One's called Queer Looks, which is about LGBTQ, uh, like street style. And one's called Queer the Pier, which is just about queer history in the city. Cause there's a very famous pier in Brighton, which is where the name comes from. Um, and yeah, there's just, there's lots of like queer places, queer, spaces, bars. Um, there's recently been a queer bookshop that's opened, but it's just like the general atmosphere of the city. It's a really great place. Wow. I'd really recommend going. Yeah, I have, I really would love to. Um, when did you first identify that you could like tell or spot queer fashion? Now, of course, I'm going to start by saying that I know there are listeners, you know, I know there are people who don't read queer and I'm not one of those people, but I am married to one of them. Yeah, I mean, but I guess it's just people who dress in a more, almost a way that they're really expressing themselves, how they want to express themselves. And often that doesn't mean that they're queer. But I think even in those cases, it means that they're more likely to be accepting of different kinds of people, maybe. Um so I don't know if it was related to growing up in Brighton and having an interest in queer fashion, in lesbian fashion history, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that it's it's definitely like fed into it, especially when it comes to 
putting together the exhibition Queer Looks, which opened in 2017 that I mentioned a minute ago. Um, there I was really looking at how different, like normal people's self-expression, especially in the context of Brighton, feeds into their queer identity. And there's so many different kinds of self-expression included within that, some that are more like visibly obvious and align with um, recognised queer trends or possibly even stereotypes and some that might not be recognised but are just as important within the community and uh, just as common within the community. Can you describe some of those? Like what? Yeah, are, like what's so, one that's mm, generally recognised and one that's not recognised? I guess something that would be more like recognised as a queer style would be I guess there's a stereotype of lesbians wearing like dungarees or overalls. We call them dungarees here, uh, overalls in other places. Um, and that's definitely like a stereotype that sometimes rings true and sometimes doesn't. Whereas something like jeans and a t-shirt might also fit very easily into a lesbian or a queer style canon, but could very easily be worn by anyone else, would not be necessarily recognised as being queer. And there's so many other things like that, I guess, as well, when it comes to things like colour. Um, one of the items in this exhibition was a, well, there was a case of three different outfits. One was actually my own outfit. I wear a lot of pink and I can talk about that more if we if we want to um, sure there was another outfit that, 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 that I'll come back to it in a second there was another outfit that was a gay man's outfit that was all blue um and then there was an outfit in the middle that was a non-binary person who had a red jacket that said gender roles are dead on the back so it was this really interesting um use of color and expectations about like color and gendered roles but flipping them on their head with than being linked to a queer a queer identity. Um, but yeah, I can definitely talk more about the colour pink. I could go on about pink and queer identity for years. For years? I mean, maybe. Wow. <laughs> let's then let's start. Let's just see what we get to in th on this show. Yeah, talk about pink and yeah. queer identity. <laughs> so I just think that pink's a really interesting uh, colour because it carries all of these gendered associations, which is something that started, it really started to get going in like the 1950s, where there was this massive push by marketing forces, basically, to market products with the colour pink to be able to sell the same product to a woman as they would sell to a man, Oh, but make twice as much money because they're selling two versions of it. Um, which is really how this like pink for girls, blue for boys. Like, do you have an example of a product? A pro I can't think of like a, a, a specific product uh, off the top of my head, but in the, like even things like cars or um, like household like utility objects. I mean, like I can that. certainly think of those from like from now. I just didn't know if there was like more a recently. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm thinking of like. Razors, yeah. for instance, or like even yeah. Lego sets for children, you know, like obviously that's, but I just, yeah, I was curious if there was like a early days example. I don't know, tin lunch boxes. Mm -hmm. What did people do in the 50s? Oh, something like that, definitely. Yeah. But oh, God, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I'm sure there are like so many. And the 
yeah, the genders associations of the color pink and then the color blue as an opposite to that have just grown in time, especially with like children's toys, children's clothes. Um, so I think that for a lesbian or for a queer woman, especially someone who has been, who has had these gendered ideals of the color pink sort of put onto them from when they were younger, it's really powerful to claim this color, to claim the color pink and say, oh, but I'm not, um, I'm claiming the color pink, but I'm not living up to those gendered stereotypes of being just a wife, mother. Not that being a wife and a mother is a bad thing, but that those are the only things you can be, that you have to be submissive and quiet. And the color pink in a very different context, I think, can have a lot of important meanings and can say a lot of things without you really even noticing that they're saying them. It's more like subliminal. Yeah. I wore, um, the most recent time I was on a red carpet, I wore a pink suit, which I was, which was like, oh, wow. I also wore one to my wedding and both times it was definitely something I was like very aware of as a choice. Cause I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, for me, I guess maybe that would be a color that I think other people would assume I would avoid, um, because of like what I'm doing gender wise. Um, it's like, it's like, um, it's like a dude walking a red carpet in a pink suit like it's like very Harry styles or whatever absolutely there's been like a big moment recently i think of celebrities wearing the color pink and then social media really grabbing onto that mm. which is really interesting that the most though with like cis dude straight cis dude and maybe also like maybe straight isn't even the right word i don't literally have no idea how harry identifies but like yeah i don't either yeah like but definitely cis and dude there there seems to be like a um assigned male at birth like non-binary celebrities that i see doing like some creativity i don't see as much reflection in the assigned female at birth or like cis women um group of folks i think i think also like trans women are really showing up when i just look at like what we're sort of reflecting back um as like boundary breaking right now i it's the one zone that i don't like totally see a ton of I don't know. Like, I don't see a ton of like, ver- like, like just using the word lesbian. I don't see a ton of like yeah. interesting lesbian fashion in the celeb space. Um, yeah. Do you? Am I missing I something? Agree. I do- I don't think that there is a lot of representation, or maybe not. Maybe representation is not the right word. I think that there are probably there's probably instances of it happening but it just doesn't get the same media exactly exactly yeah excitement exactly yeah um yeah i i agree with you that's that's what i think it's the media excitement thing and the like public affirmation that this is cool i I feel like i see that a little bit less um which is just interesting to me i'm not sure why that is that folks are like less 
interested or attached. I don't know. Like maybe I've wondered if it's that we still reward. We're in like a zone right now of rewarding like gender creativity for like drag queens, but not kings, you know, or like Mm. it just seems like there's a little bit of an interest in like breaking the binary for folks who sometimes present as men um, and like a little less interest. And I and I don't know why that is. I'm curious about why that is. I, I completely agree with that. I think that's definitely a thing that's happening, especially you mentioned drag queens versus kings. And we've got the massive success of RuPaul's Drag Race, for example, but you don't see, even in the, I think the most recent series of the UK, RuPaul's Drag Race, there was one um cis woman queen but who was a drag queen you don't get that um right celebration that celebration of drag kings to as much of an extent but there are loads of drag kings out there doing really incredible work um yeah i think that it's not that it's not happening it's just that it's not being celebrated to as much of an extent and maybe that's because for decades it's been acceptable for women to wear trousers and to wear more masculine clothes, even if in the past it definitely wasn't acceptable, whereas there's still more of a taboo for men to wear, or, you know, in simple terms, for men to wear dresses. Um, yeah. So people are, find that more, more interesting or more rule-breaking, maybe? Yeah, that's really I've also wondered if it's because here's here's a question. Here's here's a theory that I have. So it's like dudes who again in like a sort of celebrity space or like a um public notoriety space. Dudes yeah. who like present as really masculine, that can be for women or it could be for men. Like men could look up to that person. Or women could be interested in that person. And then dudes who present as, as you know, when Harry Styles wears a dress, that can still be attractive to women. Women can, like, think that's mm. hot and sexy in, like, a confidence way. And then when women wear dresses, then that is something for women to look up to and for men to be attracted to. But when women wear pants, I think as a culture, we don't know who that's for. Like, just from a marketing perspective, from like a we're all commodified bodies perspective, like, I don't think that we have, um, I don't think we put priority on women who might be interested in that or men who might think that that's sexy. So I think it's like a off the edge of the marketing presentation thing also. Like, that's how I think about it. It makes me think of there was an article um, kind of recently you might have seen it that said like um dressing like a lesbian is the oh yeah i mean i literally know the person who wrote this yeah totally totally. really i mean the the, the article itself was like was fine i I remember i read read it and the article itself was was okay but it was the headline and yes exactly oh my god um because it's like well it's not new it's dressing like a lesbian has always been sexy and powerful just right. maybe not to the the same audiences right um but i think that 
what what pe- what got people so annoyed about that was that it was almost it seems like these these lesbian trends or these lesbian ways of dressing in some lesbian or queer spaces um have not been recognized or celebrated and suddenly it was like they'd been snatched away and given to another audience and i don't think that that was what the article was actually doing but just in the headline everyone saw it that way yes and that's actually why i wanted to talk to you because so i yes we're all like this is this is great it's all going in the right yes because (laughs) i think what you're talking about is erasure and something that's true in my experience but like i'm not a historian um something that's true in my experience is that like just being somebody who's not who men can't understand how to value if like we value women for their like sex appeal to men and if and if you're somebody that's outside of that um i i just don't know that we've ever had a moment of like really getting square with that like i don't know that there's there there are like like i think about you know maybe Hannah Gadsby or like, you know, there, there are times mm. that somebody could pop through for a minute and like yeah. have some visibility and be outside of that. But it's, it's always funny to me because like in queer spaces, I'm attractive and my clothes are attractive and then just switch yeah. the space. And that's not true. And that is so odd. Like, I don't, I don't understand why people just don't, um, see that like that if they're not reading it the lack of creativity and like maybe it's not for you like maybe i'm not supposed to absolutely is that what you you know what you're attempting to do what is the what's your sort of desire in bringing focus to this area so i think that i just want lesbian history to have a bit of a moment in the sun because like you were saying there's never been that real celebration and platforming of I think lesbians now and in history within a wider culture like we might have our moments but it's never been a general thing and part of that is that I want as a fashion historian and coming from a fashion history background um I want to bring that into the fashion history world I also want to from like a, a more queer studies, LGBT perspective, I want lesbians to have more of a focus in that because historically queer studies and LGBT history has focused more on gay men, which also should be having um, more focus on them. But that doesn't mean that lesbians shouldn't also be having a focus as with any other member of the LGBTQ community. But I also want to have a space where I'm talking about lesbian history. I'm really highlighting lesbian history and why it matters and why the clothes within that matter. But as with a perspective that's very inclusive, because there's so much of lesbian theory, I think, and lesbian, I think the lesbian representation or the representation of the lesbian community at the moment seems very exclusive. Um, It seems trans exclusive to a lot of people. But the truth is that for most lesbians now and in the past, that hasn't been the case. It's been a very inclusive community and space. Um, So I want to come at the work I'm doing with an actively inclusive 
mindset while still focusing on lesbians. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, even just using the word lesbian, like having that be the word that you're choosing versus queer. And it's it's tough yeah. because at least I know it's tough for me. It's like I identify with multiple words there. Like I, I actually also identify with gay. Like I also identify with gay. That makes sense to me. I identify with lesbian. That makes sense to me. And I identify with queer. That, that, that makes sense to me. I do think that in the communities that I'm a part of, I guess it is a bummer to me that like this, the stupidity <laughs> and um, the yeah. ignorance and arrogance of some people has like taken away the power of a word like that, because I think it's a mm. it's like a word that I avoided using for a really long time about myself because I've, it had so much stigma mm-hmm. that I would use gay. Um, and then when I. Yeah, me too. Really? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. And then when I got over that and I it felt like exciting to use this word that more specifically talked about a history and community that I feel a part of. And um, then the lesbians, like, like for instance, there's like a non-commercial pride alternative here that's called Dyke Day. That's like, it's it's also where in the people I know, it's like also where non-binary and trans folks would go as opposed to like the pride parade that's in West Hollywood. Like that's mostly for cis dudes. And yeah, it's just called Dyke Day. I also love that it's called Dyke Day. Um, but the meaning of it is like dyke plus, you know, um, Mm. you know, anybody that feels that they want to be a part of this community. And I, anyway, I think it's a complicated moment. Yeah. I mean, within, within history, lesbian community has always included trans people, bi people, pan people, Mm -hmm. because it's the the parts of us that we are oppressed and excluded for that are the things that bring us together. So, you know, it's it's hard to to go. Oh, it's just lesbian history because while it is a lesbian history, there are always other people involved in that, and that's the same with our communities now. With, yes, like you were saying, Dyke Day with the word Dyke, like. Yeah, it's a lesbian term, but that doesn't mean that only lesbians have ever used it because there are other people who have been oppressed for the same reasons. I'm like very curious about specifics about, you know, um, markers throughout time, like what you know we're talking generally like from a distance about history but like let's actually really talk about it like what are some early signifiers or trends Mm -hmm. um and maybe i don't even know if you can like do it by decade like i like in this decade we wore that like i don't know if you are able to do that yeah you can do that i'd love to hear it so it's it's hard to like go we wore this and then we wore this and then we wore this because obviously lesbian communities all queer communities have had to hide themselves so that there, there's not always been communication between one group and then the next group that springs up so there hasn't been the same sort of um timeline of trends that there might be in more mainstream fashion but there are definitely signals and styles that come up throughout history so 
where could I start with this? Let's do some throughout the 20th century. What's the earliest one you have? Well, I guess I would go back as far as Sappho in ancient Greece, um, because the poet Sappho, who the name, the word sapphic came from and the word lesbian, because she was from the island of Lesbos, in her poetry, where she wrote about all manner of things, but a lot of the time, love between women. She also used the symbolism of violets, the flower of violets. Um, really? A lot, loads of the time, yeah. So violets at that point might have been like a, a lesbian symbol. Wow. But from then, they got reclaimed by lesbians um, in like the 1920s, especially because they had read these poems by Sappho and they saw themselves reflected in them and they saw this symbolism of violets and they went, yeah, that's for me. So there's instances where lesbians in 1920s Paris, for example, wore violets pinned to their lapels. Oh my um, God. All right. I'm obsessed. Already. Yeah. Which is it's really, really good. It's really cool. And there was a play called The Captive that um, was on stage in Paris and also in New York in the 1920s. And in those audiences, some of the lesbian women who went to see the play would wear violet pins uh, as a mark of like affiliation. Oh my God. Okay, um, love it. Which is really cool. But even, um, cause that's the 1920s, a bit earlier than that, maybe in, uh, the early 19th century, the early, just going into the Victorian period, you might know of Anne Lister, the inspiration for Gentleman Jack. Yes. Um, yeah, the show Gentleman Jack. And she, in her diaries, because she was a real person, in her diaries, she wrote about some of the clothes that she wore and some of the clothes that other people she met wore, including other lesbians. And something that comes up a lot in that is riding habits, which were basically clothes that women wore to ride horses in, but they were the most masculine kinds of clothing that women were like socially allowed to wear. Um, and there's loads of instances of women who were lesbians wearing riding habits just in their day-to-day -day lives. So you, you're saying we've always been into sports? Basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm personally not into sports, but I think it's always been a bit of a... a but as a, as a community, as a community. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We've always been into women's um, soccer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Riding um, habits. That's super interesting. Yeah. They're really cool. What else is there? Monocles. Monocles are so fun because they're almost like... Right. What is that about? Like, you wouldn't go, oh, a lesbian fashion trend, a monocle. But they, especially in upper class lesbian circles in Europe, again, in the 20s, they just came into fashion. And they were in fashion for all women if they were of like a certain class and of a certain kind of, of fashion. Um, but lesbians were particularly fond of them. So there's portraits of um, a woman called Una Trowbridge wearing a monocle and she's got a high collar and a, a tie and a sharp blazer and some dachshunds. And she just looks like the gayest thing ever. And there was a club in the 1930s in Paris called Le Monocle and all of the lesbian patrons there, because it was a lesbian club, 
would wear monocles to go to the club. That's really so, interesting. I wonder monocle. if, yeah. okay, this is just, obviously I'm just, this, I'm just like stabbing at anything, but so something like a riding habit or something like a monocle, I mean, I'm just also imagining, right? Like the obsession with sports in some way is that it's, um, I mean, how I think about it is that it is, you know, if, if folks who are lesbians, like don't have to prescribe to gender norms, like, like I don't have to stay at home while like my husband goes and like plays golf or like shoots hoop with shoots hoops with the boys. There's like no need for that. So I can either opt out and not care about that, or I can do it myself. And I don't have to worry about like limiting my femininity because my, uh, or uh, my masculinity, because my, my partner doesn't care. Um, so I think about that also perhaps being true with something like writing, which is like, yes, I know that women did that, but I know that they literally didn't even sit the same way that men sat on horses. And so I would imagine that like anything that would make that easier or that would show a real interest in that would be breaking gender norms. And similarly, like a monocle, you, it denotes reading, right? Like that's what you use it for. It's a, it's a, it's not, it's not like spectacles the same way. It's like a magnifying glass, right? Like essentially that's the equivalent. Mm, yeah. Maybe, yeah. Or, or like bifocals or something. So I would imagine again that like, not that, you know, women weren't sometimes encouraged to like, I mean, this is literally based on like nothing but television and like random readings that I've done of, <laughs> you know, things like of that era. But, you know, if women were encouraged to read, but not that much, you know what I mean? Or women were encouraged to like develop themselves, but not that much, right? Um, so if you have a monocle, then that's like not only an upper class thing, but it's also like, no, I like do that a bunch. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does that sound yeah. like it makes sense? Because I just am trying yeah, to track absolutely. like, how are these things similar to how we are now? And that just seems like it's like, yeah, part of it. Absolutely. I think it's interesting that you were talking about um, reading and uh, reading and writing and any of these more like academic pursuits that women might not have been encouraged to do. Because when you think of historical lesbian figures, loads of them are writers. Um, And I think that part of that is because they were writers, they wrote down things about their lives so we know that they were lesbians and we know about them but I think it's also just this escape from expectations that were put onto them yeah right and also like even if like some husband would have been there then that also would have been time you person you had to spend time on and like and a person who would have mm-hmm. monitored whether or not like how many how much were you keeping a journal but if you like didn't I think yeah. about this all the time because like as a stand-up comic, there's a rich history of lesbians in stand-up and people have often asked me why. And I'm like, well, it's because we're not like worried about our boyfriends being intimidated by how funny we are. Like there, it's not, I don't think it's that, I don't think that it attracts yeah. more lesbians. I think it attracts less straight women because straight women have to be mm. so, so, have to monitor themselves so much um, mm-hmm. to be attractive to men. Absolutely. That makes sense. (laughs) Okay. So talk to me about, okay, we've got violets, we've got writing habits, we've got monocles. First of all, I've written a list down because these are things I'm going to get. 
Yeah. Maybe not a riding habit, but a monocle <laughs> for sure. <laughs> a monocle, yeah. Yeah. I've been so tempted to get a monocle for a while now. I'm like, hmm, where would I where would I go about? What is stopping you? I don't I don't know. I should just bite the bullet and buy myself a monocle. Let me ask you if you think this is cool. What if it's like, I don't really need, I wear contacts, I don't really need an additional prescription, but what if it's a sunglass? You know what I mean? A sun, a I sunglass think monocle. That, that what do you would think? Be, that would be taking the monocle, the lesbian <laughs> monocle into the 21st century. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, think of you course, should do it. Okay, thank you. I mean, I'm, my mind, yeah, my mind's churning. I wonder if that even exists, but if it doesn't, then I guess we'll create it Someone together. should jump on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what else, what else can you talk us through? I love, I like, I love this. Oh, what else can I talk us through? Um, I mean, in the fifties, well, the forties to the sixties, the mid century of the mid 20th century, um, you, you get to butch and femme culture and the lesbian bar scene, particularly in the U S and in Europe to almost a lesser extent, um, but within butch and femme culture, there were almost their own fashion, si- not fashion signals in the same way that a monocle or a violet are a signal, but whole outfit symbols. So like butch lesbians might be wearing, I was looking this up earlier, actually, there was a lesbian club called The Gateways in um, in London. It ran from the 1930s to the 80s, but it was particularly popular in the middle of the 20th century. And there, there, there are descriptions that have been collected of what lesbians who went to The Gateways wore. And um, one of them was like, I would wear... A, a butch lesbian would say I would wear sweater vests and ties and trousers and winkle picker shoes because those were particularly good for dancing. They were like pointed shoes. I'm not sure why those would be better for dancing than non-pointed shoes, but this is what this butch lesbian said um, so that they could dance with their femme partner more easily. And the femmes would come along and they'll be wearing skirts or dresses and interestingly one of the descriptions said that the femmes I think this was in the 50s would always have a black patent leather handbag um, which is really cool to see that distinction and then in the 60s they'll always have their hair in like buffons um but then there were there were lesbians who would be in these spaces who weren't doing either of these things who would have more of a like maybe they'll be in a couple and they'll be dressing in a much more similar way. They'll be less distinguished. But there is this um, this acknowledgement of the lesbian, the mid-century lesbian bar scene being very much split into butch masculine styles and feminine styles. Um, so that's definitely like another marker. Um yeah, and then you get into like lesbian feminist spaces of the 1970s and 80s and things get a lot more androgynous, um, which is, I think, when the sort of boiler suit dungarees overalls situation first came into play. Wait, is a boiler suit a jumpsuit? Is that what that is? What's yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Like, like a jumpsuit, you know, like any kind of overalls, practical clothes, basically. Yeah. Right. Oh, do you have, do you know... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what wild fang is? Do you have any idea what that is? Is that has, no? Is that... I don't. So in the U.S., there's this clothing brand that's like out of Portland, Oregon, and they started right. making jumpsuits, 
And mm-hmm. those jumpsuits are like, I've worn one to events before or something like that. And like, I think I wore one to the L, the premiere of the, I did, I wore one to the premiere of the new L word. And I was definitely not the only person wearing one. I also think that they were wearing one in the L word. Like, like, like that was like, like the, the person who's the showrunner for that show was also wearing one at the premiere. And then I was in a movie last summer and they were looking for like gender neutral clothing and they just got me one of those, but like took the tags off. So I'm like in space yeah. in the future, but I'm just wearing like a wild thing jumpsuit. <laughs> um, but I, I, so, so even if that's not specifically that brand, you're saying that in the sixties people were doing yeah. that already. Yeah. I mean, it's something that like originated from butch lesbians who were in practical blue collar jobs having to wear clothes like these right. for practicality. But then in like the <laughs> 1970s and 80s, with the lesbian feminist movement, these sort of clothes got really popular within lesbian feminist communities because they were androgynous and they were like actively not appealing to men. Right. Um, and that's just, I think, continues within queer community now. Right. So is it shameful that I own multiple of these types of jumpsuits, but I cannot fix my own car? No, no, no. Okay. I think that You're that's a, a general sort of thing <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Um, all right. So jumpsuits, more androgynous looks. What was happening in the 80s? Um, what was happening in the 80s? I think we were getting that. I think that some of this was coming into it still. Um, some of this androgyny, um, the lesbian feminist uniform of jumpsuits overalls. Um, jeans even but i'm not sure if there's anything more specific but even more general lesbian not lesbian styles 80s styles would have been in lesbian culture power suits etc etc would have been in lesbian culture um i recently saw a really interesting oh it was amazing it was a magazine called Time Out, which is a London magazine from the mid-90s, I think it was actually, might have been the early 90s, that was like the lesbian issue or it had a a part in it that was the lesbian like issue within the magazine. And it had a jokey sort of article that was the the different types of lesbians. um, And it had like the the boss lesbian that was like a, in a power suit and it had like the hippie who was in um like tie-dye and stuff and it had the, the like leather dyke who was in leather um and I think that some of these archetypes which were almost a joke but I think slightly based in reality as well came in in the in the 80s and into the 90s as well which was when this article was from um But yeah, I think there was a a lot more near the end of the 20th century. There was more diversity in the general lesbian fashion area because we were at a point where lesbians were starting to be more open. So they weren't having to only exist in spaces like lesbian bars of of the 40s, 50s, 60s. So maybe they could express themselves in ways that they might have been more specific that might have been more specific to them 
Um, so you get maybe a bit more diversity in types of styles because people are living slightly more openly than they had been before. What about um, is are like is something like haircuts covered by or yeah covered by fashion? I don't know. Maybe that is that is that in the genre yeah. of fashion? For sure. I actually I re- not that recently, but I did a talk on. I think it was a short history, a history of queer women's hairstyles. And one of them obviously was in general, just short hair because for queer women, for lesbians, short hair has been a trend for quite a while. Um, the earliest thing I actually found was going all the way back to ancient Greece. There was a story. What? Um, a Yeah, there was a story about two women um, called Megilla and Demonassa, who they basically seduce this other innocent woman. Uh, They're not put in the most favourable light, but when it comes about in the story that they are two women and that they're seducing this other woman, one of them had a wig on and she takes off her wig and shows she's got a shaved head and that's what almost signifies her oh as my being God. a lesbian or possibly as being like a trans man. It's a bit of a, you don't, you know, that we they didn't have these words then. So you don't know exactly what the meaning was, but it's this shaved short head that is symbolizing that, um, which is fascinating because that's something that has lasted all the way into today, like short hair, shaved hair, in queer culture. Wow. What besides that? Is there a different besides short? Yeah. Um, what else would we have? My mind's going blank. I mean, looking at you, color. Um, yeah, absolutely. Color. More recently, ov- obviously, there's a limit to how far back you can have like brightly colored hair. But within queer culture and lesbian culture specifically, colored hair is definitely it's definitely become a thing and though I don't have a reason for that like a a factual reason to just present um I think it's something to do with just self-expression and being able to show yourself as different to the norm I suppose in some way because obviously lots of people who have coloured hair who dye their hair unnatural colours are not going to be queer, but a lot of the time they are. If you see someone with coloured hair, you're like, hmm, maybe, maybe that person. Right. I mean, I think also, you know, counterculture allegiance. Mm. I think of something like roller derby or whatever, like any going to like a rock show or something like that. It's not that everybody there is going to be queer, but I feel like in in my experience, it's just a different percentage because it's like, Mm. I think folks that, I think there are tons of straight people that feel like they don't fit in culture. They want to be part of counterculture, but I don't know that it's something that we can actively choose. Like there are certainly some queer folks who like want to fit with culture and somehow pull that off. But like for most Mm. queer folks, it's just like a designation that we're already part of. So I think that the, yeah, if I think of something like unnaturally colored hair to me that just is like it's like fuck you i'm not part of this like that's like part of the vibe Mm. and i think definitely there are some straight folks that feel that way but i think as queer folks we also feel that way because culture is like fuck you you're not part of this and we go yeah Yeah. agreed (laughs) 
we're not you know? just embracing it embracing right. this unconventionality i suppose yeah right exactly and maybe also even just the types of jobs that that queer folks gra- gravitate toward because again it's like certainly there are lawyers certainly there are doctors but we also have a ton of jobs that are counterculture jobs you know it's like that thing of like yeah oh my god how what kind of job could you have if you have that many tattoos and it's like well i'm a tattoo artist you know like that <laughs> like yeah that's kind of, what kind of job could you have with pink hair you're like a historian of lesbian fashion it's like oh then yeah exactly actually you should have pink hair <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely it's like earlier we were talking about I was talking about what it's like in Brighton. And again, it's these, it's the spaces that you exist in that feel more like you can, you can do that. You can be unconventional um, in whether that's spaces like roller derby or spaces like a city or spaces like just the friend groups you're in. It's like, well, I can, I can dress however I want. I can dye my hair whatever colour. I can be as gay as I want because I'm able to in these spaces or I'm more able to in these spaces. Yeah. So just as we sort of are wrapping things up, I'm curious about, you know, I know you said you wanted to bring attention and like lift up. So you're you're doing talks. Is there something else that you would would want in this space? Like are what is it that you hope for? Is it continuing to you know, speak? Is it like teaching? Is it writing about yeah. this? Like what's, what is your, what would you love to, to bring yeah. to this space? Well, I do want to continue to do what I'm doing. Um, the, what I'm doing when it comes to putting my research and my writing online where it's accessible because I think that it's really important for these histories to be accessible to people for free um, because so much of the time they're behind an academic paywall or I'm, I'll be doing like a lecture at a university and you've, you've got to be at that university already or there'll be a if it's if there's a book, then that's all well and good. It might be in a library, but it might not, and you've got to buy the book. And while I want to be in these spaces as well, I think it's really important to keep the work I'm doing accessible so that it's a history about a community for that community. Um, but I do also want to... I, I am writing a book at the moment. I'm not sure when anything is going to happen, but I am writing it. And that's sort of writing this history into reality, into like a physical, um, like a book is a, not always a physical object, but as a physical object that says, here is our history, here's lesbian fashion history. Um, let's learn more about it. Let's share more about it. Let's grow it more. Let's research more. And that's really what I want to keep doing. Wow, that's awesome. I guess my final question is, Obviously, this would also be dictated by like nation, social, like wealth, um, race. Yeah. Like obviously, mm-hmm. this would also break down on those for those factors and, and, a, and a zillion others. And I'm just curious about like how manageable is it to do research? I mean, because like, w- do you have a specific narrowness to your study, or is this just like you are? Or do you know other people who do this? Or are you just like, 
attempting to catalog a community that is extremely varied and diverse. Yeah, basically, yeah, but with the knowledge in mind that it's never going to happen. I'm just trying to start the process because, like you said, there are so many limitations with so much of what I've researched so far. Not all of it, but most of it is in, it's based in US lesbian history. It's based in European lesbian history because those are the things that are accessible. It's the things that people have maybe written about already or conducted interviews about. It's the things that I have access to archives. Um, If it comes to history in the rest of the world, for example, it gets a bit more difficult because of language barriers, because of location. Um, So it's stuff that I do try my best to delve into areas when I can, but there is a limit to it. And it's a limit that hopefully I'll keep pushing over time, but that maybe I'm hoping that with the work that I'm doing, it might encourage other people to do similar work. And then we can share that together. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely. You're getting the baton ready so that it can be passed. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, this was great to talk to you. Thanks so much for making time. And before I send you back into your day, I always ask folks to shout out a queero, which is a a person, place, or thing that made you feel that you could be who you are today. Would you like to shout out a queero? I would like to shout out, kind of cheating it, a whole group of people, which is I mentioned throughout this uh, episode, the the exhibition at Brighton Museum, Queer Looks, and everyone involved with that or everyone on the team, because that really kickstarted me wanting to embrace my community and my community's history. So everyone on the Queer Looks team. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much. And I can't wait to read your book. And I'm going to immediately search for a violet to wear on my lapels ASAP. (laughs) Yeah, it's a must do. (laughs) Well, it's been really, it's been really nice talking to you. 